What if I told you that the Bible is often less concerned with giving us answers and more concerned with giving us wisdom? You see, how we read the Bible, what we expect the Bible to be, changes how we approach it and how we interact with it and often how we're satisfied with it. And one of the things, and this isn't a particularly scientific survey or study, but one of the things that I hear a lot from people as a pastor is what they think that the Bible is. And so a lot of times people say that the Bible is an instruction book for how we're supposed to live. Right? It's our basic instructions before leaving earth. It's a guidebook for how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to say and how we're supposed to act. And so if you approach it that way, then you come to the Bible looking for a description of every action you could have in every single circumstance. I often hear, too, that the Bible is a book of answers, that the Bible has an answer to every question that you ask. And so then we take every situation that we have and we go to the Bible and we look for the big why questions. And if that's the way, either one of those two things is the way that we approach the Bible solely, then we are going to be frustrated because that is not the ultimate aim of the Bible. You see, the Bible gives us every answer we need when it comes to knowing God and finding salvation. Everything that we need to understand who God is and how we enter into a relationship with him and how we're saved by his grace, the Bible answers in great detail those questions. But there are a lot of questions that the Bible very intentionally doesn't answer. And we see this is a source of frustration even inside the Bible itself. There are times when people in Scripture come to God and ask God these questions and the response that God gives is not very satisfactory to them. He doesn't really answer their questions. And we even see this happen with Jesus. That even his own disciples would come ask him questions about the kingdom of God. And they say, tell us when you're coming with your kingdom. And he says, that's not the question you need to be asking. It's not your job to know the time or the hour. You just need to do what I'm calling you to do, and then you'll know when it's time. And that can feel very satisfactory and very frustrating if that's how we're trying to approach the word of God. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, what do we do when the Bible is silent on our circumstances? What do we do in the times when we come to the Bible looking for something very specific and and very on the nose and it doesn't give us the answer that we think that we're looking for? I think that we need to learn to read God's word looking for wisdom. Not for all of the detailed answers, but coming to God and coming to his word and coming to his big story looking to be trained, to be able to look at the circumstances that come and think in a way that honors and glorifies God, and to act in a way that reflects the grace and mercy of Christ in everything that we do. And I feel like I can make that statement pretty emphatically because inside of God's big story in the Old Testament, there's an entire category, an entire section of literature that we call the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to look at today. The book of Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. 
And while there is wisdom spread throughout the entirety of God's big story in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we're going to focus specifically on these five books and see not necessarily what they teach us, but how they teach us to think and how they teach us to understand how we're to live as God's people in the midst of a variety of circumstances. And we're going to see the beautiful truth that God has created us And gifted us and equipped us to be people who think and people who process things and people who can grow in wisdom so that no matter what comes, we can think and act and move in a way that honors and reflects God's goodness and grace. And so our root passages today, we're actually going to look at two that we'll talk about in a little more detail as we go. But they're going to be Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then in Ecclesiastes 12, it says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we thank you for the fact that you are wise in a way that we could never fathom or understand. But God, also thank you that you have entrusted us with the ability to act wisely that you've equipped us with everything that we need in your word and in the Holy Spirit to grow in the wisdom that you've given us. Father, you know, sometimes we default to this desire to have the answers easily presented to us and just to be simply told what to do. But God, thank you that you trust us enough to encourage us to act in a way that honors and glorifies you in all circumstances. And thank you that we have everything that we need in your word to grow in that wisdom. And so as we look at these five books today, God, as they stand as this small sample of all the wisdom laid out for us in your word, God, help us to be people who pursue wisdom, who love wisdom, who seek after wisdom in everything that we do. And then as we do that, as we gain that wisdom through your word, help us to put it into practice day after day as we live life as your people. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's begin with the book of Job. Job is a very unique piece of wisdom literature because it's a story. When we look at all the other wisdom books inside of the Old Testament, they seem very form-fitted for the type of wisdom that they're laying out. And so Psalms is teaching us a lot about our emotional wisdom, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. But the way that that God communicates that to us is through songs, through poems. And so he uses this very emotional form of literature to help us understand how we should act wisely within our own emotions. The book of Proverbs is a book of practical wisdom. And so we have these nice, short, concise statements of this is what you should do and how you should do it, and this is what the result of that would be. And so because Proverbs is practical, the format and the flow of Proverbs is very matter-of-fact. Ecclesiastes seeks to answer the really deep questions. 
And so when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it feels like philosophy and deep philosophy and almost a stream of consciousness kind of flow, looking to seek out these deep questions of meaning and purpose. Song of Songs is a book of wisdom about romance and marriage and sex, and so it does that in a very fitting way, through a love song. But Job is dealing with a different kind of wisdom. And for the wisdom that the book of Job is laying out, only a story would suffice. Because Job is teaching us how to have wisdom in the midst of suffering. And because that's such an emotionally charged, difficult thing, a simple proverb really wouldn't do. Even a poem probably couldn't fully reach the depths of what that feels like or what that understands. And so in order to communicate this deep wisdom, God tells us a story about a man named Job, who was the most righteous man around. He had everything going for him. And then God allowed all of it to be taken away. And we see Job suffer in a horrific and humbling and devastating manner. You see, Job's story is conventional wisdom torn apart. Because in the ancient world, as well as in our world today, there's something in our subconscious that teaches us that suffering is a direct result of action. And sometimes, of course, that's true. If we do things that, that cause our own suffering, we can bring about that on ourselves through, through careless actions or unwise actions. But that's not always the case. But there is something in our minds and something in the ancient mind that says, if I just do enough good things, then I will have a good life and everything will go well for me. And if I treat people well, people will treat me well. And if I do the right things, then I'll grow and I'll prosper and I'll thrive. And then if I'm not doing the right things, if I make unwise choices, if I make bad decisions or treat people poorly, then bad things are going to happen to me as well. But Job shows us very clearly that that isn't always the case. Job reminds us that sometimes righteous people suffer, and sometimes wicked people prosper. And Job reminds us, in a not-so-subtle way, that the wisdom of God stands above and against our own, because the book of Job simply doesn't make sense based on the way that we like to view the world. And there's a point in the book of Job where Job is just frustrated and angry. And I've referenced this a couple times over the course of this series, maybe because I resonate with this particular moment in Job's life very well. But he just had had enough. And he comes to God and he lays out this case for why he basically shouldn't be suffering. And he just puts it all on the table before God. And then God responds. And it is a horrifying response. It says that God speaks to him out of the whirlwind. And I don't really know what that means, but it sounds very intimidating and uncomfortable. And God does not coddle Job at all. And in the midst of Job's suffering, God looks at Job and he says, Who is this that darkens my door? A man with words without knowledge. And then he says, Brace yourself like a man and I'm going to ask you some questions. It's just really intense. But when Job is laying all this out, he's saying, God, this is not how things are supposed to work. 
I'm a good person, and bad things aren't supposed to happen to good people. See, that makes sense. That's a nice, concise little philosophy that we can hold on to. If you're good, good things happen. If you're bad, bad things happen. This is how you should be thinking, God. Why is this taking place in my life? And God says, you don't know anything. And it's this harsh reminder that we don't fully understand the way things work and that God knows all of this better than we do. And so Job has this very uncomfortable realization that he doesn't understand things the way that God does. This book teaches us that sometimes the righteous suffer and that doesn't make God any less good. And it's very difficult for us to understand that truth But God's response to Job is just, you need to know who I am. And as Job sees the power and the majesty and the wisdom of God, he says, you know what? You're right. I don't understand, but it's okay. But even more than that, because Job doesn't just leave us hanging with this knowledge of, well, sometimes bad things happen and we should just trust God. Job teaches us how to endure and how to have wisdom in the midst of suffering, and to also realize that there is at times benefit to difficulty and trials and tribulations in the life of God's people. And John Walton, in his commentary on the book of Job, says that all of this, the knowledge of how all the inner workings of suffering, is inadequate and unsatisfying when we or our loved ones suffer, or when we are crushed by the suffering we see all around us. It's not meant to be satisfying, but to drive us to faith. No explanation can suffice to alleviate our suffering. And no strategy can avoid or eliminate suffering. But as Bonhoeffer observes, life with all its struggles, trials, and hardships is what develops us into a people of faith. And so Job teaches us that the why of our suffering is not that important. Sometimes even the how of our suffering is not that important. But that even in the midst of our trials, even in the midst of our sufferings, that God is still good, he is still a refuge, and he is still a shelter for us, even when we are at our most weak and most vulnerable point. And so the ultimate goal of our suffering and our trials and our tribulation is to shape us into a people of faith and point us back to the God who loves us when we're at our weakest. Job reminds us that God's big story is not ignorant to our pain. That it doesn't gloss over the fact that God's people hurt. It doesn't take our pain for granted. But we also see that it doesn't give us a quick and easy way out. But Job teaches us to suffer well and to struggle wisely. That the Bible's not going to give us a quick and easy out to our problems but it does give us a place of refuge and comfort in the midst of our struggling and in the midst of our suffering. Again, it's not concerned with giving us all the answers, but teaching us to act wisely. Then comes the book of Psalms. Before we get into Psalms, I want to read something that the prophet Jeremiah said. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5 through 10, as God is teaching the people where they should find their hope and their comfort and their wisdom. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from God. 
He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good outcome. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Then verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Jeremiah looks at the people and he says, you're about to be in a place where you need to learn to trust something. Because the people are about to go into exile like we saw last week as Jeremiah is making these proclamations. And God says to his people through the prophet Jeremiah, don't trust in in people because people are going to fall and people are going to wither. And if you're going to make flesh your strength, if you're going to make earthly wisdom your strength, then you're like a tree planted in the middle of the desert and you're going to run out of that wisdom and you're going to run out of that strength and wither and fall apart. Instead, trust in the Lord. And then verse 9 says, don't trust in your heart. This kind of hotbed, this representation of, of emotions there. It says, don't trust in the way that you feel, because the way that you feel can often lie to you and lead you astray, but trust in God who never wavers or never changes. Our emotions can be a very difficult thing to process. It can be a very difficult thing to navigate, especially in our spiritual life. Because the way we feel is so predominant in who we are, we can often tie our walk with Christ and our relationship with God into the way that we feel about him or the way that we feel about our circumstances and situations. And so when things are going well, maybe we feel very close to God. Or perhaps when things are going well, maybe we feel like we need God a little less. Or if things are going poorly, then maybe we feel like God has left us or abandoned us and we forget the truth that God is with us always. When we're in the midst of triumph, maybe we feel that God is doing good things in our life. When we're in the midst of tragedy, maybe we feel like God has forgotten about us completely. But Psalms is here to give us some wisdom in the midst of the wide range of feelings and emotions that we have. I love the book of Psalms because it's huge. It's a very, very big book with a lot of chapters, and some of those chapters have a lot of verses. And I think the magnitude of Psalms helps us to understand exactly the kind of wisdom that Psalms is trying to give us. Because the book of Psalms covers this wide array of emotions from people at the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. We see the psalmist writing about victories and battle and successes and triumphs and these emotions just filled with joy, teaching God's people to praise the Lord in all circumstances and seeing God as this big, wonderful creator of all things. But we also see the psalmist write from a place where they say, I am at the doorstep of death and my enemies are surrounding me and I am drowning and I am broken and I am hurting. And we see everything in between throughout the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms takes that volatile, ever-changing spectrum of emotions and reminds us of a very important truth. The book of Psalms teaches us that, that when I am joyful, that God is the source of my joy. 
That when I am scared, that God is a comforter in the time of my fear and is stronger than my enemies and the things the world can bring against me. When I'm at peace, it's because God has led me there. When I'm sorrowful and broken, God is the lifter of the lowly. No matter what my emotions, no matter what my feelings are, no matter where I find myself, the constant is that God is. That God is with me in the highest of highs and God is with me in the lowest of lows. God is with me when I'm succeeding and God is with me when I'm failing. And God is constant even when I am not. I've told you this before, but I learned a few years ago that at some point in my life, I have become very susceptible to seasickness. (laughs) And you only find that out at really bad times to be seasick. Because you don't get tested for seasickness. You just find yourself on a boat one day, or in our particular case, on a very small kayak one day, and you find out that the ocean makes you very, very sick. And then you think, it's probably not a big deal. It's probably just because of some random circumstances. And so a year or so later, you find out 45 minutes into an eight-hour deep-sea fishing trip that, no, you in fact do get very, very seasick. And you just hold the side of the boat and wish that you could just fall over and get sucked into the motor and never come out. Because you're thinking, I can't make this for eight more hours. And then a very helpful, he's not helpful, first mate says that, you know what you can do? This is, by the way, about 30 minutes before he tells me that he has Dramamine. Oh, by the way, this story is about me in case you couldn't find out. He tells me before the Dramamine, which would have been very helpful, that one of the things that you can do when you're seasick is look at the horizon. Now, at this particular moment, I was way too deep in. Like, once it's already happening, I don't think there's anything that salvages this. But there is something, I think, very true about this. That when you start to feel the boat rocking and the waves moving up and down, and I'm getting a little irpy right now talking about it, But there's something about being able to look at the horizon. It gives you this reminder that even though things are moving and even though you're going up and down, it's not the whole world. That there's still something. When you look at that horizon, you can find this fixed point that reminds you that there's something steadfast and something unchanging. And the book of Psalms says, listen, life is rough. The waves are choppy. Things are going to make you a little spiritually nauseous and you're not going to know how to feel and your emotions are going to take you on this this crazy journey. And so in the midst of all of that, look at the horizon. Look to God who is unchanging and never moves or never shakes or never shifts. Psalms gives us the wisdom to remember that even when our circumstances send our emotions running, God is our steadfast constant who never changes. And it helps us wisely navigate something that can be a very difficult thing to navigate. The book of Proverbs is probably where most of us go when we think about wisdom. The book of Proverbs has this reputation, and rightly so, that it's the book of answers. It's where you go to figure out how to live. And there's two kinds of people in the world. There's big picture people. I mean, this is probably really oversimplification, but it's fine. You get the idea. There's big picture people, and then there's detail people, right? And oftentimes, big picture people are really good at seeing the whole story and seeing all this stuff, but then maybe the details get left out. And then the detail people, you know, they're very good at at looking at the, the intricate things that take place, but sometimes can lose sight of how it all works together in this big picture. But God as he's telling this big story in the Old Testament, reminds us that he's telling a big story with every T crossed and every I dotted. 
that God has a plan for the big picture, but God also is very concerned with the small, minor details of everything that takes place. And Proverbs gets to the details of wisdom set in motion in the practical places of our everyday lives. Proverbs chapter 4, and this wisdom given from a father to a son. In chapter 4, verse 3 through 9, says, When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one on the side of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her or wisdom and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her, and she will place your head a graceful garland, and she'll bestow on you a beautiful crown. The book of Proverbs makes this case that wisdom is crucially important, not just in the big picture, but in the everyday things. And this simple advice from a father to a son saying, prize wisdom and value it highly and put wisdom into practice in every aspect and in every moment of your lives. And the book of Proverbs says that that begins with this understanding of who God is. In chapter 1, 7 saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and that fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs says that this day-to-day practical advice and counsel that's about to come in the rest of this book is all formulated and founded on this idea that we understand who God is. And if we don't have that foundation, then all the rest of this is going to fall apart. Proverbs echoes that again in chapter 3, verse 5, saying, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. It's almost a disclaimer to the rest of the book, saying if you think that you're just going to plug and play these little practical nuggets of wisdom in your life without realizing their source, then it's still all going to fall apart. And if you don't have this foundation of wisdom that comes in a knowledge of who God is, none of this is going to mean much for you at all. But the book of Proverbs basically tells us that if we have the knowledge of who God is, and if we claim to be God's people, then we should act like it. And that has a direct impact on every part of our lives. And so we do see the book of Proverbs teaching us how to be good parents, good husbands, good wives, how to conduct ourselves as children of parents, how to be productive members of society and how we should relate to other people, how we should deal with our finances on a very small level, how we should be generous and all of these kind of things, very practical, hands-on advice of how we should live and how we should function. And so out of all the books of wisdom, this would be the easiest place to just sit down and say, okay, I need to know how to deal with this particular circumstance, and you will probably find something that can help in a very practical way. But even though there are a lot of very explicit answers inside of the book of Proverbs, more than all of that, this book still calls us to be wise and tells us that the wisdom comes from the law, from the word of God. Proverbs 13, 13 says, Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. In Proverbs 30, it says, The man declares, I am weary, O God, and I am weary and worn out. 
This is an intense passage here. He says, surely I am too stupid to be a man. It's very harsh. I have not the understanding of a man, and I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to the heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? And who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Proverbs 29.18 says, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Over and over and over again, we have this reminder inside of the book of Proverbs that we can have all the practical wisdom that we want, but if we are not grounded and rooted in the word of God, if we don't trust God above our own selves, then we are constantly going to find our lives falling into shambles. And so no matter how much the Bible can tell us explicitly, this is what you do, the Bible constantly comes back and reminds us of this is how you are, someone who acts wisely. That you know God, that you love God, that you understand his word, and then you put his word into practice daily in your lives. The book of Ecclesiastes is kind of a weird one. Philip Yancey says this about the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, how can Ecclesiastes coexist with its nearest neighbor, the book of Proverbs? Two more unlike books could not be imagined. Read them back to back and you wonder whether Ecclesiastes was written as a kind of mocking rebuttal. Proverbs has life figured out. Learn wisdom, exercise prudence, follow the rules, and you will live a long and prosperous life. Such industries, however, studiously avoid Ecclesiastes. For it depicts a world where none of the Proverbs work out. The confident, matter-of-fact tone, I've got this figured out and I need only follow the sage advice, has vanished. Replaced by resignation and cynicism. Thrifty, honorable people suffer and die just like everyone else. Evil people prosper and grow fat regardless of Proverbs, neat formulas to the contrary. And it really is an amazing juxtaposition. If you were going to read through just straight chronologically through the Bible, you read through the book of Proverbs, and it really does. It reminds us that we should be wise, but here's some practical advice. Follow this advice, and good things should follow. And then the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of Proverbs just jumps in right here. In verse 2 of chapter 1 says, Vanity of vanities, or meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Everything is meaningless. It's rough. And it seems so harsh after what comes through all of these books of wisdom, really. Because Job and Psalms and Proverbs and even Song of Songs teaches us that every single thing has meaning. Your suffering has meaning. Your joy has meaning. Your pain has meaning. Your sorrow has meaning. Your day-to-day life has meaning. Your love and your relationships, all of this has meaning. And we can read all of that and gain that wisdom and think, oh, this is so good. And then Ecclesiastes says nothing has meaning. And then we are very confused and sad. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we have this, this person narrating it. In the ESV translation calls him the preacher. Other translations call him the teacher. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, we see this teacher who searched everywhere looking for meaning. In all the different things of the world, looking for some kind of purpose and some kind of value. And even though he looked everywhere, he found no meaning, no purpose, only 
vanity. And so what do we do with a book that tells us something like that? See, Ecclesiastes teaches us that God is the only source of ultimate meaning. And only in him does everything else find its purpose. Ecclesiastes reminds us that the God who governs the seasons, that the God who created the universe, the God who set everything in motion has a time and a place and a purpose for everything, but all of those things without God are nothing. All of those things without God are completely meaningless. All of those things without God are vanities. If we look for our suffering like Job, is a place to find meaning. But we do so disconnected from the God who governs all things. Our suffering is meaningless. If we look at the book of Psalms and we look at our joy, if maybe joy is the most important thing in our life and in having these successes and victories, if that's what we're aiming for, but we do it disconnected from the God who gives them purpose and value and meaning, the greatest things that we could possibly have mean nothing. And Paul realized that. Because in the New Testament, Paul worked his entire life to become this Pharisee, this religious leader. And he studied and he worked and he rose in the ranks and he had achieved everything that he wanted and everything that he needed. But he had done it all disconnected from Christ. And when he met Christ on that road to Damascus, he realized that everything that he thought had value really had none compared to knowing Christ. If we look at love and marriage and sex as these ultimate things, completely disconnected from God, if that's where we try to find our value and our meaning and our purpose, we will find that those things are empty as well. If we look to find meaning in our work, in money, in our relationships, in all the things that Proverbs talks about, if we try to find meaning there, disconnected from God, we find them to be empty and vanities. At the end of the book, In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we see this summary. And I love the the opening sentence of this in verse 13. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. The teacher is saying, I've looked at everything and I've looked at all of the details and all the different things that this world has to offer. I've heard the entire case that everything in our world is trying to make to find purpose and value. But after all has been heard, here's what I know. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You can try to find your value and your purpose in all of these other things, but you were made to know God and to fear God and to love God and to follow God. And if that is not the foundation and the cornerstone of everything that you do, then everything else is going to be meaningless and empty. I don't know that we have to say that out loud, but we have to say that out loud. Because I'd venture to say all of us have had some pursuit in our life one, in one way, shape, form, or fashion where we thought this is the ultimate thing in my life and we chased it and we pursued it and we grabbed a hold of it and we realized it's not here. This isn't it. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says, listen, 
When you grab a hold of all those things, you're going to realize that they are empty and empty and empty. But when you look to God and when you chase after him and pursue him and all of these things are added, when you do what Jesus says and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those things will be added to you, you will not only find purpose in your pursuit of God, but you'll find purpose in all of these other things that God has appointed to be a part of your life for the seasons that he has allowed them to take place. Our suffering and our joy, our work and our money, our relationships, love and marriage and sex, all of these things will find their purpose when we're pursuing God first and foremost. And so Ecclesiastes gives this, this wisdom to say, my pursuit is God. And that lays out this wisdom that helps us to understand everything else that God allows to be part of our lives. And then finally comes the book of Song of Songs. And I was just kind of reading and doing some research about this. And one of the cool things about the book of Song of Songs is just that word song. Because when we think about songs, we think about all kinds of songs and all different genres and all different meanings. And and always really weirds Lydia out when we talk about music because I just really love sad songs. And Lydia's like, why do you want to be sad when you listen to music? I'm like, I don't know, but I just really like sad songs. Minor keys do something for me. And so I really like sad songs. But according to this Hebrew use of the word songs, the songs that I like aren't songs. Because the word song in, in the Hebrew culture is a joyful type of literature set to musical accompaniment. And so they had music for lament and music for times of sorrow, but that wasn't considered a song. And so a song is something joyful and something happy and exuberant. And so the title of this book is very important because it says that it's the song of songs, that it's the most important song, or the easy translation of that is this is the very best song. And so we put all those details together. Basically, what the title of this book is saying is that this is the very best joyful piece of literature and lyric set to music that there could possibly be. And so what is the very best song in the Bible about? It's about love. And more particularly, it's about romantic love between a husband and a wife. Song of Songs is a wisdom book about love, marriage, and sex. And it's one of the most misunderstood books. It's a book that is often very <laughs> carefully approached because it's, it's difficult to figure out what this book's purpose is. And throughout the history of the interpretation of Song of Songs, people have tried to do things like say, well, this must be an allegory between our relationship with God, between God's relationship with his people. Because, you know, why else would there just be a book about love and marriage and sex? That doesn't make a lot of sense. There's no bigger thing there. And so this has to be some sort of allegory. But that isn't right, because that would be weird. If you've read the book of Song of Songs, that is a very weird way to portray a relationship between God and his people. This is strictly a wisdom book about something very important that God has given his people. And now it's not a how-to guide, but again, like Job and like the book of Psalms, it's a deeper wisdom about the nature of these things. It's not going to answer all the questions about how you should pursue someone that you have romantic affections for. It's not a how-to book about how to have a good and healthy and long-lasting marriage. It's a book of wisdom teaching us the deeper truths about these important things. The book of Psalms teaches us about the beauty of attraction, 
the beauty of love and the covenant of marriage and the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And we see that in Song of Songs chapter 8 kind of come to its head. And it's this really amazing passage where we see the covenant established between this, this man and this woman that the whole book has built this tension of the two finally coming together in this marriage relationship. And it shows us that this is something important and something that God honors. In fact, we see as this covenant of marriage is being established and, and all this is taking place, that it happens in a garden. Which is a very important throwback to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Because if you remember, Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 tell us the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And a transition takes place from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3. Because in Genesis chapter 2 it says Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were naked and they were unashamed. They were husband and wife together and they had nothing to hide and nothing to be embarrassed of. And then when sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3, the first thing that happens after Adam and Eve fall into that temptation and fall into that sin is that they realize that they were naked and they were ashamed and they tried to cover themselves up. And it seems very clear that in Song of Songs chapter 8, when we see all of this taking place inside of this garden picture, it's this reminder that through this covenant of marriage that God is pushing back the curse. That God is beginning to undo some of the things that took place in Genesis chapter 3. And so we see this as a celebration of a good gift that God has given to his people. And we do see some very important wisdom on how that marriage relationship should be worked out. A scholar named Miles Van Pelt says this, and I really love the way that he kind of pieces all this together about Song of Songs and how it teaches us what marriage should look like. He says, The rock-solid commitment makes white-hot intimacy possible. And white-hot intimacy fuels, protects, and supports rock-solid commitment. Traditionally, the church has done much to support the rock-solid commitment of biblical marriage and its design, and its permanent design. However, it has done little, if anything, to encourage, promote, or celebrate the heat of marital intimacy. On the other hand, the world loves and unashamedly celebrates the white-hot nature of sexual intimacy, but it despises the rock-solid commitment of marriage created as the context for this heat. Both positions by themselves are weak and endanger the covenant partners. And so the book of Song, Songs teaches us the importance of a covenant. And I love the phrase in just how it's worded, this covenant in chapter 8. In verse 6 of chapter 8 of Song of Songs, it says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord, and many waters cannot quench the love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And this covenant made between these two people, they say that it's something as, as rigid and as powerful as anything in the world. It's a love that is as strong as death and jealousy as fierce as the grave. That there's nothing equal to that commitment, that it should be something defended and guarded with all costs. But it's also not something that is just a, a staunch covenant between two people, but it's something that burns with fire and intimacy and something that comes from God. 
And so the book of Song of Songs teaches us that this marriage relationship is something to be defended and, and protected between the two people involved, and that covenant should be upheld with everything in them. But also it's something that should, should burn with fire and intimacy and love and joy, and it should something, be something that should be enjoyed. Songs teaches us that we should think wisely of love and see it as a wonderful gift given by God to his prized creation. The Bible answers plenty of questions. Again, especially the big one. The Bible answers the question about how sinful, broken people are able to come into a relationship with a holy and perfect God. And Paul tells us that we have everything that we need in Scripture to be wise for salvation. To realize that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that God loved the world so much that he was willing to give his only son who would offer himself through his death and through his resurrection to be an act of salvation, to be the source of salvation, that if anyone believes in Christ and what Christ has done in his death and resurrection, then we can be forgiven of our sins, that we can repent of those things and walk out of our sin and into new life as new creations of God and to have this hope that will never pass away. And that is what God's big story is all about. That's the most important question God's big story could possibly answer for us. And everything that we need to know that is inside of scripture. But the Bible isn't meant to answer every question for us, but it calls us and it trusts us and it equips us to be wise enough to navigate the waters that it doesn't part. That sometimes our life will lead us to waters that God's word doesn't give us an explicit map to get through, but it gives us everything that we need to be able to navigate those waters well. It teaches us how to endure in the midst of suffering and to trust God when life doesn't make sense. It teaches us to look to God as the steadfast horizon that keeps us focused and fixed when our emotions are crashing about like waves in the ocean. It teaches us how to be good parents and spouses and children and co-workers and, and to be stewards of our finances and caretakers of those around us who are in need. It also teaches us to put all of those things in perspective, realizing that the only meaning and purpose and value comes through the God who is able to give it. But it reminds us that all those things, that our wisdom comes from a fear of God and the ability to know God and to keep his commandments and to trust that the God who created us has equipped us to be able to navigate life's storms and seas. And he's given us a Bible and he's given us a brain and he calls us to put those things together and to use them. And so when we read scripture, we need to do so not always looking for answers. It's certainly reasonable to approach God's word and look for answers and look for counsel, but we should always be coming to God's word looking for wisdom, asking and praying that God through the Holy Spirit would take his words and would apply them into our lives and help us to use them to navigate those things. That we would pray the same thing that the psalmist would pray, saying that your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. And it might not lay out every step that I should take, but it casts light on the path so that I can know how I need to go. That God's word is something that we can hide in our heart 
so that when temptation comes and when sin is at the doorway, we'll be able to know out of the wisdom that God's word has given us how to navigate those waters as well. And so let's be the people of God living in a way that honors and glorifies God by doing what his word calls us to do. Because we've seen and God knows all the things this world has to offer. At the end of the matter, all has been heard. We should fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And when we do those things, God will make us wise not only for salvation, but to be able to live as people who have been saved.